to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We're going to go against the grain, as usual, Mm -hmm. for another couple of hours. And boy, I mean, there's a lot of personal interest to me happening uh, to get into. It's one of those busy news days. We have John Bolton talking openly about, about plotting coups. Around the world, Uh, we've got Sweden talking about nuclear weapons in vague and maybe concerning terms. We've got more from the January 6th committee, or have we got just more of the same, which is starting to be a theme explored in the opinion pages of uh, our mainstream media favorites. Uh, We've got a little more on Hunter Biden. We've got footage from Rob Elementary in Uvalde, Texas. We've got promises from the Navy on its disastrous Red Hill uh, fuel storage facility. That it is Mm -hmm. now saying like, wow, guys, we didn't realize we were making everybody sick with their poisoned drinking water. Oh, my gosh. It's been a string of extraordinary mistakes. Certainly not a pattern of behavior that you could find repeated over and over in the U.S. Navy and the military in general. No, like what an unusual occurrence for us to have uh, blatantly polluted the the environment that we find ourselves in, and also I I bowled a one twenty six. No kidding. Which is not a great bowling score, but is a personal best. So I thought we could clear the decks and just talk about that for, for a excellent. While. No. Good for you. No, and of course, inflation. Hey, it's as high as it's been in the last 40 years. We're in a cost of living crisis, along with many European countries. And this economic news has real social and political implications. And we are going to talk about that. But I can't go any farther without talking about Chris Cuomo. Yeah. And somehow we've we've missed this for two weeks, John, because I have not talked about Chris Cuomo uh, very much over the past few months. I assumed he was just quietly building a huge lawsuit against CNN and drying his tears with big wads of cash. Uh, But I guess he has been otherwise engaged and he's been working on a new project in which he is a hashtag free agent. And now he's in Ukraine. Right. And he is even, according to his Instagram yesterday, uh, on the Eastern Front of the war in Ukraine, walking along trenches with Ukrainian soldiers and showing pictures of big piles of grain and saying, isn't it a shame that this can't be exported? Uh, So, yeah, apparently he has been there for two weeks now on his new free agent tour, which he announced with a video of himself chomping on a cigar and flexing a bicep and appearing to yell at the camera. I saw that. is so sad. It was very, very strange. It's really just... Yeah, it is. It's just sort of it's just sort of sad. Um, He does have a ton of money, so I don't have a lot of sympathy. But if you know, if your friend comes to you and says, hey, what do you think about this as a video for for a launch of my new venture? Don't do that. Don't do that. I can feel the sweat coming off your Instagram post. I would I would suggest you relax a little bit. So, yeah, yeah. Chris Cuomo, real reporter is the, uh, the the next incarnation of this guy. I was surprised on that Instagram post. To see how every single comment was supportive. Mm-hmm. Everyone. Go get him, Chris. We miss you so much, Chris. Take care of yourself. You're doing the Lord's work. Uh-huh. Whatever. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Surprise. Okay. All right. A couple of things that I've been following. Um, you know, I mentioned on Monday that uh, that CIA whistleblower Joshua Schulte is, is on trial in New York. He's accused of leaking what has become known as the Vault 7 documents. Uh, 
Mike Pompeo, when he was the CIA director, called this a, a digital Pearl Harbor for the CIA. That's how bad it was. His first trial ended in a mistrial. And it kind of looks like his second trial is going to end in a mistrial. Oh, well, that's better than he predicted yes. on Monday when we heard this news. On, we, on Monday, our listeners might recall, I said that the jury uh, had indicated that they were coming back, which would be bad. Well, they came back with a question, and it was a very technical question. Uh, and so then they went back to deliberate, and they deliberated all day Monday, all day Tuesday, all day Wednesday, and they sent word to the judge that they're having serious disagreements, and they don't know how long they're going to take. He told them, keep deliberating. Well, I mean, I I, I can't be predictive because I'm not inside that jury room. Right. But I really, really hope that if they're not going to acquit him, that they hang. Mm-hmm. Um, now, interestingly, he's been representing himself. This is a guy... He's a computer genius. He's a hacker. He's not a lawyer. He's got autism. He can't get along with anybody. Like even his coworkers said they hated him, but he was a genius representing himself. And it looks like he may have hung this jury. Yeah. I mean, just off the top of my head, it does feel like if you're representing yourself and you get off, you really aren't guilty. Yeah, you really (laughs) aren't. (laughs) Yeah. So we're, we're watching that. I just want to make a really dumb tech joke that it's a Pearl Harbor, P-E-R-L Harbor. Has anyone decided to use, you know, that's a programming language. No, Uh I didn't know that. Well, there, everybody out. There's one person out there going right on, Michelle. That was a funny (laughs) one. (laughs) Um, We should also probably talk about inflation. Uh, It's sort of not news now to hit a new record for inflation, but it, you know, Still kind of, you know, even though we're just it's just a turn of the screw that we are experiencing. But still, uh, 9.1% year on year inflation rate for June, the highest since 1981. Conventional wisdom, of course, uh, has that this seals the deal for another 0.75 percentage point rate hike by the Fed. Yes. Later this month, Um, the core price index which excludes food and energy prices, that increased apparently slightly less in June year-on-year than it had in May, but the difference is 5.9% to 6%. So, Which is still kind of high. Yeah, yeah, it still is. Um, and also, you know, I understand why they want to have this indicator that has less volatile, you know, excludes the more volatile prices in it, but food and fuel prices certainly affect us in our day-to-day lives oh, very yes. much. So, you know, not, not sure that's going to help anyone politically. Um, gas up 11.2% year on year, uh, energy costs 7.5%, food up 1% and shelter, Uh-oh. which is the, uh, I do not know why the Bureau of Labor Statistics uses shelter, uh, for whatever Bureau of Economic Statistics, wherever this came from, uh, they use shelter, I guess, to mean housing, Um, But that was up 5.6% year on year. Basically, the cost of everything except for airline tickets and hotel rooms uh, has gone up. And also, I didn't get to mention this on Monday, but um, Axios was reporting there that rents in D.C. between the first quarter of 2021 and the first quarter of 2022. I don't know if you have read this, John, or if you want to just take a guess on how much they've gone up. I'm afraid to even take a guess. 15.7%. You know, Michelle, like you, I'm a renter. And... um, I've been in this townhouse since the summer of 2018, so it's been four years. Mm-hmm. 
And when I first rented it, I needed a place big enough for myself and my three kids. And, um, and I got a place because it was the end of the summer at a price that was below market. And these, these landlords have been really good to me. So I thought, well, you know, with inflation, I just had to renew my lease, uh, like a month ago. I thought with inflation, I'm going to get creamed this time. Cause it was already several hundred dollars below market market mm-hmm. five, four five, six hundred dollars below market and inflation. I'm going to get just crushed. And they raised it under 5%. So I was lucky and I, I have a good job. What about people who don't? What about people who lost their jobs during COVID or because the economy is readjusting, yeah. right? How, how do you keep a roof over your head? You don't. At 15% increase in rent. Yeah, you don't. You don't. No, you, li- you, don't. you live in a tent. Yeah. You know, which in, we see in, in, all over town everywhere. And that has been the most striking change in DC yeah. in the last 10 or 15 years yes. has been the proliferation of tent, tent of, cities. Te- yeah, of tent encampments all over this town. Yes. And you know, the only thing that's ever done about them is every once in a while, the mayor decides so to go and qu- quote unquote, clean one out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, throw uh, away all of their possessions. Yeah. And then they start from scratch again. It is a disgusting state of affairs. The good news is that uh, we found another $1.7 billion to send to Ukraine. So, yes, you know, I've actually, in all seriousness, I've lost, I've lost count of how much money we've spent. About 8 billion would be the top of my head guess. I think so far since since I think that's probably right. February. Right. A lot. We just have it laying around. Yeah, just nuts. I wanted to talk for a second, too, about Representative Rashida Tlaib, uh, one of the members of the so-called squad. She took on something a couple of weeks ago that was just so heroic. You know, I've made jokes on the show about why the Espionage Act has never been amended. And the reason the Espionage Act has never been amended is because you can't go on the campaign trail and say, I'm going to make it harder to charge people with espionage, right, right. right? Well, that's what she did. She wrote a bill that would make it illegal to use the Espionage Act against journalists. The bill would also define the term classified information. The Espionage Act doesn't mention classified information because it was written 50 years before the classification system was invented. Mm -hmm. So it uses the term national defense information. But she pointed out when she sponsored this bill a few weeks ago that national defense information is not defined. And what most modern whistleblowers are accused of leaking had nothing to do with the national defense. Nothing. Well, this thing flew right through committee, almost unanimously. And then last night it was killed in the House Rules Committee. Do you know why? What's the... No, I got an email. And why in the Rules Committee? Yeah. Now, the, the old Rules Committee, before uh, uh, the, um, the speakership of uh, Newt Gingrich, that's where the power... Uh, was in the House of Representatives. The Rules Committee was in charge of of allowing things onto the floor of the House for a vote or killing them. That changed with Gingrich, and that authority was taken by the office of the Speaker. So Nancy Pelosi was the one to decide, okay, I'll send it to the Rules Committee for a vote. Now, that's usually a rubber stamp. I have no idea why the Rules Committee would then kill it. I guess somebody had to. 
is the is the conclusion I'm going to come. Yeah. So now Nancy Pelosi doesn't look like the bad guy in this and it's still dead. So Rashida Tlaib said that she would um, re-sponsor it in the next Congress. But if she finds herself as a junior member of the minority party in the next Congress, it's. Which seems likely, although maybe not quite as set in stone as uh, had been predicted. That's right. We're We're going to talk talk about about that. that. In our second hour, uh, we've got more to get to in this hour, though. I think we're going to take a quick break and then come back with all of the foreign policy. Yeah, we've policies. got this guy who walked in off the street and has been <laughs> sitting here. We'll either chase him out or interview him. When we come back, you're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, and we are going to take a minute to talk about coups. We're going to talk about famine. We're going to talk about why Ukraine's public health sector can get money that the U.S.'s cannot. Mm-hmm. Talk about what Sweden is saying about nuclear weapons. We're going to talk maybe about some foreign lobbying and how that works in the United States and in Washington in particular. And joining us for all of that is Jeremy Kuzmarov. He's managing editor of Covert Action magazine and the author of several books on U.S. foreign policy. Thanks for being here and being in the studio. It's great to be here in person. I want to talk about John Bolton first, Um, former national security advisor to Donald Trump, ambassador to the U.N. under George W. Bush, uh, worked at USAID for a while, which I was just reminded of uh, this morning. And yesterday he told CNN's Jake Tapper that uh, he had helped plan coups, not in the United States, but in other countries. And of course, he was talking to Tapper about what exactly happened to result in the riot on January 6th and contrasting what he said was not a coup attempt to the very careful planning by smart people that happens when you are actually trying to enact a coup d'etat. And so what happened is Tapper says, well, you don't have to be brilliant to plan a coup. And Bolton says, I disagree with that. As someone who has helped plan coups d'etat, not here, but, you know, other places, it takes a lot of work. And that's not what Trump did. And so Tapper, like, followed up very mildly later on saying, hey, uh, you want to tell me about some of these coups, about some of the successful ones? And Bolton sort of vaguely references Venezuela, although he says that wasn't actually successful, nor was it really a coup. And ha ha ha. No, I'm not going to tell you about anything else. And so, you know, did Jake Tapper ask Bolton about the legality of plotting coups in other countries while you are serving in the U.S. government or what that says about the rules-based international order successive U.S. administrations claim to uphold. And so there's been a lot said about Bolton just coming out and admitting it and about Tapper's uh, pretty weak follow-up. I want to ask you, Jeremy, what should what should people do as a result of this information, you know, we, we talk a lot, ask a lot of questions about like, how should we feel about that? How should we incorporate that into our worldview? But like, is there any is there a response to hearing a, a former high level government official say 
yeah, I plotted lots of coups. Well, there should be. I mean, I think we really need the revitalization of a uh, grassroots peace movement in this country uh, that's advocating for a systematic transformation of U.S. foreign policy and connects the uh, outrages of U.S. foreign policy uh, with the uh, ills that we uh, have domestically, like what you were discussing earlier, the huge homeless population, uh, the lack of investment uh, in public health programs, uh, social programs, uh, uh, economic uh, development programs. Uh, and, you know, people have to put two and two together that the U.S. government has spent a million billions of dollars applauding uh, regime change operations uh, in foreign countries where there's no, no business intervening, uh, waging war in those countries. And that's the same government that is, uh, uh, you know, failing to address the economic problems and the concerns of ordinary people. And I think too much political activism has been focused uh, on single issues like abortion, which I think those issues are important. And I, I agree with uh, those who are outraged, but people have to link all these uh, outrages together and see that something has gone wrong. I think Bolton uh, symbolizes that something has gone terribly wrong in the U.S. government. They have these kind of people uh, plotting, uh, you know, uh, uh, sabotage in countries uh, worldwide. And it's really not the job. Uh, the, the U.S. government is supposed to look after the American people, not cause mayhem and chaos around the world. And occasionally it slips out you know, what they're doing. They admit it. Yeah. And it's sort of and, and again, you know, uh, triggering military adventures hither and yon uh, with the stated purpose of preserving the will of the people in different countries. Right. And so, again, it's just sort of it, it just you know, puts the lie to every justification for every adventure and every expenditure. And then, yeah, I think I think you're right. I think this idea that you can somehow reform this this government, this system of government in the United States bit by bit is really like that. That is what I think is really exposed by statements like this from from Bolton, that you can't possibly there has to be some kind of total overhaul how that is achieved. You know, I mean, I guess the only answer to that is through uh, hard work and careful organization and over a long period of time, which is, I guess, a disappointing answer for a lot of people, but the only possible way. And, you know, I, let me add real quickly too. Bolton said yes. this with not a hint of irony. Oh, no. Or apology. This was something the opposite. Oh, sort yeah. of bragging and chuckling about exactly. it. Exactly. Uh, I know. Yeah, I sure do know more than I'm going to tell you, Jake. Exactly. Like, that was, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. An inter international crime. That's what we do. It's not a crime when we do it. That's right. that's basically the, the that's the rule for the United States in in the world. Not a crime when we do it. Um, I also want to talk about this this letter from Sweden to NATO's Secretary General. This was sent on July fifth. Uh, it is from Na uh, Sweden's Foreign Minister to the Secretary General of NATO, formally confirming her country's desire to join the organization. And the paragraph that is uh, catching people's eye says, Sweden accepts NATO's approach to security and defense, including the essential role of nuclear weapons, intends to participate fully in NATO's military structure and collective defense planning processes, and is willing to commit forces and capabilities for the full range of NATO missions. And so a lot of people are saying, does this mean that Sweden is going to happily host NATO nukes? Um, a story in the local notes that Sweden has long been a promoter of nuclear disarmament. 
and as recently as 2019, launched the Stockholm Initiative for Nuclear Disarmament, uh, which was a group of 16 non-nuclear nations that sought to diminish the role of nuclear weapons in security policies and doctrines. And so 2019 to 2022, this feels like a pretty abrupt policy shift. And so I wonder, Jeremy, uh, you know, do do you think all of this disarmament stuff that Sweden was doing before was just window dressing? Uh, what would it mean for Sweden to even be open to hosting NATO's nuclear weapons? Uh, and I would imagine that this is something Russia would want some clarity on. But we are in a time where communication with Russia is basically, at least with the U.S., is basically non-existent. Uh, so, you know, how how concerning should we is this? I think it's very concerning. Uh, firstly, uh, the United Nations did pass a measure that was supported by the majority of countries abolishing nuclear weapons, uh, and that should be the standard every country uh, adopts. And I think, uh, unfortunately, the Russophobia and the war in Ukraine is creating, uh, you know, is dividing the world in a dangerous way. And I think many countries uh, that have had, as you point out, that have a tradition, you know, a, a more progressive tradition, more pacifist tradition, like Sweden, like Denmark, they're aligning more and more with NATO or like Canada. Uh, and they're, you know, firmly aligning themselves with NATO, adopting a very strong uh, anti Russian position. Uh, unfortunately, the left-wing groups in those countries that have historically pressed for disarmament and more progressive foreign policies have abdicated and have uh, bought into the Russophobia and anti-Russia fervor. And this is leading the world down a very dangerous path. Uh, it could lead to a world war, possibly nuclear war. And they're going to have the infrastructure in place to use nuclear weapons if a Sweden or other European countries are lending their territory to storing nuclear weapons or developing nuclear weapons. That creates the infrastructure to make uh, a nuclear attack uh, more feasible. And so I, I think it's a very dangerous world environment. And related to my previous point, I think, you know, pacifist oriented people have to uh, link up uh, not just in the in the United States, but worldwide against this new Cold War, against this Russophobia and press for uh, reintegrating you know, Russia, ending the war in Ukraine first and then forging a new you know, world security architecture that would include Russia and China. I wonder, do you think, like, what, what do you think is happening, right? John and I have talked a lot about um, the short-sightedness of this U.S. administration, but I don't necessarily, you know, I don't, I don't know the, the ins and outs of the Swedish government right now and if they are a particularly short-sighted bunch or not, because this does seem like a pretty quick change. And so I wonder what you think is really driving some of these turnarounds. Do you think it is a genuine concern, you know, to say like, well, Russia did, you know, they, they crossed the border, they invaded Ukraine. We are genuinely worried uh, about, you know, R Russia seeking to expand its territory in Scandinavia. Or do you think that, you know, what it has been really successful, this effort to fracture anti-war groups uh, by using this tactic that says, well, if you're not with us, you're with them, right? You must be, you mentioned you, russophobia a couple of times. To me, it seems like it's very useful, this this tactic over the past couple of years, to, to call people who criticize various wars uh, dictator lovers, right? If you try to point out what's actually going on in Syria, you get called a, an Assad lover, right? If you try to point out what you know, how we actually got to this point in Ukraine, you get called a, a Putin lover. And it seems like that's been pretty effective and people are pretty scared of being called 
one of the baddies, right? And so you eliminate you eliminate any sort of middle ground uh, for for people to join in. I wonder if you think that's what's happening because otherwise it just seems like well, is everybody is is everybody as as craven as the as the U.S. is? I I didn't I didn't want to think that about every other Western government. Yeah, I think unfortunately uh, you hit it on the head. Uh, I mean, the real threat there's there's no real threat from Russia. I mean, yes, there's you know some historical enmity between Sweden. And Russia, you know, going back to the era of Peter the Great, but there's no real threat right now to Sweden. Uh, you know, the Ukraine issue is is a local uh, affair uh, that you know really Russia was provoked into that conflict. I mean, I think it's Russia has been painted as this aggressor, and that Ukraine is first, and then they're going to take over the Baltics, and then they're going to uh, conquer all of Europe. And really, that's ridiculous. Firstly, Russia doesn't have the capability to do that. They've had their own economic problem. I mean, they're slowly coming out of the disaster of the Yeltsin year. I mean, one reason Putin's popular is he's helped rejuvenate the economy, but they're not that strong economically or militarily. Uh, Putin is not a uh, Hitler type who has designs of, of, of aggression. If you listen to his statements, uh, he's a very rational and practical policymaker who will respond to certain provocations, uh, but is not bent on, on aggression. I mean, this is just made to whip people up into this anti-Russia fervor. And yeah, as you say, the, the propaganda is having a big effect on populations, including on the more progressive or left-wing sectors who traditionally opposed more militaristic foreign policy and traditionally promoted cooperation, uh, are abdicating from this position and 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 buy, you know buying into the, the anti-Russia fervor and advocating for very hawkish policies. And you see that in numerous European countries where, like the Green Party in Germany, I know, is among the most aggressive and pushing for the mo- more aggressive foreign policy towards Russia. And I think from what I've read about Sweden, you have the same. The Social Democrats in Sweden have been very hawkish, as uh, I know a bit about Denmark, and that's the same there. And you have that in Canada with the NDP and, and Liberal Party have been extremely Russophobic uh, and pushing for you know a closer alliance with NATO and a more aggressive policy towards Russia. So that's a disturbing pattern, yeah, where the more left-wing progressive sectors are, are really driving uh, an aggressive foreign policy. And as you point out, yeah, I think there are uh, you know a global elite. Uh, and there are certain uh, power structures and, and economic interests that w- are pushing that agenda and have the intent of trying to fracture the left and trying to spread propaganda against Russia. And ultimately, the big beneficiaries, you know, the weapons makers, uh, military industrial complex, which unfortunately doesn't just exist in the United States. Other countries have it, too. And the arms makers are benefiting from the arms buildup that's going on. And then there are, uh, you know, uh, corporate, large corporations and financial interests that uh, benefit from this. So they may be pulling the strings to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and the same thing. We talked about the uh, uh, reports that the Gray Zone had a couple of weeks back mm-hmm. talking about this very effort led by um, Paul Mason, the former BBC presenter, uh, to c- create uh, maps of sentiment connecting uh, you know, anti-war groups or left-wing groups back to this or ba- that bad guy in order to discredit them. Like, it's you know, uh, if those reports are to be believed and the gray zone uh, typically is, uh, then, you know, it's this is deliberate. It's deliberate and it's done in the name of uh, erasing resistance to whatever war, you know, the, the war du jour. I also um, I want to talk about these sort of almost simultaneous stories about um U.S. money, more U.S. money being sent to Ukraine, another $1.7 billion to pay their health care workers, we are told. 
wish we could get that kind of investment, uh, you know, on a monthly basis into our healthcare sector, but of course not. Uh, so we have this money going out the door. And at almost the same time, we have the Wall Street Journal telling us that the war in Ukraine is pushing the world's poorest towards starvation. Uh, it is a horrifying story that details the deaths of quite a few children who did not need to die. Uh, and it, it begins and stays in Somalia. Somalia is the, um, you know, wh where you get all the description from. Um, but it says, in addition to Somalia, others of the world's poorest are suffering because the effects of drawn out conflicts and increasingly extreme weather are being exacerbated by economic disruptions from Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the coronavirus pandemic. The World Food Program says increases in the cost of food and fuel since March have pushed an additional 47 million people into acute food insecurity, taking the total to 345 million people worldwide. 50 million are living on the edge of famine. Where is this happening? In Somalia, in Ethiopia, in South Sudan, in Yemen, and Afghanistan. There, nearly 900,000 people already face starvation and death. And so the story details how the war in Ukraine is diverting resources from aid agencies and how the surging price of food won't allow them to provide as much of it. And so children are dying. And, you know, it doesn't say anywhere in the story that there is an actual shortage of food. This is, as we've said before on the show, this is a price crisis. It is too expensive even for the World Food Program uh, to, to buy this grain and to pass it on. And while this story remains grounded in Somalia, Yemen and Afghanistan jump out to me on this list uh, because, you know, the Wall Street Journal sort of does does what it has to do by mentioning occasionally that the war in Ukraine is exacerbating existing uh, conditions, right? But the implication and the headline is that the war in Ukraine is causing people to starve. And so I felt like it's probably worth reflecting on how the stage was set for these deaths, because it does seem very convenient for the United States, for Saudi Arabia. For every wealthy nation that is hoarding resources right now, uh, it seems very convenient for them to have this conflict that can now be used to uh, to take the blame for this famine that, in fact, we have been sort of uh, setting the stage for for a decade now in some cases, more than a decade in Afghanistan. Yeah. And, and those are some of the countries where, uh, you know, Bolton and his friends were plotting uh, nefarious activities, That's certainly right. Afghanistan. And, you know, those I mean, Yemen. The disaster there was caused in large part by the United States supporting Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and arming them. You know, Afghanistan was devastated by 20 years of war, uh, uh, you know, led by the United States. So, I mean, I guess they're not discussing that. How those countries, you know, Somalia as well, the U.S. has interfered extensively in Somalian politics and sent in the drones and special forces. So, I mean, they're not covering that aspect of why those countries are so weak in the first place. I mean, a lot of those countries were uh, able to feed themselves and were very productive until, you know, Western empires uh, ruined them. Uh, so, uh, but I mean, they're not also addressing how the war in Ukraine was entirely avoidable. And, you know, they, uh, I mean, most of the stories I've read are insinuating Russia is to blame for the war. So blame Russia for, uh, the, you know, famines and, and calamity caused by the war. 
But, I mean, if you look at it objectively, uh, the United States has played a crucial role in, in, in that conflict from uh, supporting the coup in 2014 uh, to arming the Ukrainians to encouraging uh, or basically tearing up the Minsk peace agreement. And by providing all that weaponry into Ukraine, they're ensuring that the Ukrainians will keep fighting instead of uh, ending the war through negotiations. So that's that's never discussed. Uh, uh, the U.S. role behind this war. War and behind all the catastrophes associated with it, and 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 why? I mean, one thing we can do to end it is to push for an end to the war immediately. Push for a ceasefire. Say we're not sending any more arms. Encourage the Ukrainians to negotiate. They may have to give up territory uh, at this point, uh, but that will uh, at least uh, you know uh, ameliorate some of the situation you're describing. The first step uh, towards uh, you know solving uh, world food crisis. But, you know, the Wall Street Journal is not discussing all this. No, and and it is really it's horrifying to think that, you know, sure. I don't think we have to try to argue that the war in Ukraine has not disrupted sure. uh, grain. Sh- you know what I mean? And to the extent that Ukraine has grain that it can't uh, that it can't sell because of, uh, you know, not being able to get out into the Black Sea. Sure. I mean, there, this is cert- certainly it is exacerbating conditions, but it is so uh, upsetting to me. Right. To think that the the U.S., uh, Saudi Arabia, all of our Western allies uh, that have money and food to spare are going to get off the hook. We're going to get off the hook for refusing to send aid to the Taliban government in Afghanistan. We'll get off the hook for watching as over the past seven years, uh, you know, one of the greatest humanitarian disasters in the world unfolds in Ukraine, watching as all of these factors, you know, coalesce in Somalia and Ethiopia and in South Sudan, and then going, oh, you know what the real thing is, though? The real the real problem is is Russia and this war in Ukraine, right? It's like you got you, you have a flood coming toward you and you go that you see that reveal it. That's the real that's the real problem right there. It's so upsetting. And, you know, these pe- people are dying. They're not yeah. going to. They they are dying absolutely unnecessarily. And you could say maybe partly be- because it is useful for, for us. It is useful for our effort to maintain our global hegemony to have them die so we can pin it on the on those baddies uh, in Moscow. And I mean, I can't I just can't think of anything more more horrifying than that. I know that we're starting to run a little bit short on time, so I wanted to ask Jeremy, if I could, about uh, this company, NSO. We, Jeremy, we we talked on the air on Monday about the Israeli tech company, NSO, being on the U.S. blacklist, uh, the Commerce Department's, Department's blacklist as a threat to national security. And the reason they're, uh, they've been deemed a threat to national security is that they've come up with this software, Pegasus Software, that... Um, Governments have used the governments of Israel and Saudi Arabia and perhaps the United States, we don't know, have used to target human rights activists and journalists and and people who um, uh, don't fit into uh, sort of the mainstream of governmental policy. Right. And uh, what this software does is it, it just literally sucks everything right out of your phone and you never have any idea that it's happening. You can't tell that it's happening. They'll take everything and then turn the phone against you. They'll, they'll turn on the microphone so they can hear your conversations. Uh, they can use it as a GPS to track your movements. Now we're learning that NSO has spent hundreds of thousands of dollars just since November 
on attorneys here in Washington, on public relations professionals, and on lobbyists to try to get the Commerce Department to drop them from this list. These lobbyists, according to uh, ProPublica, have been in touch with members of Congress so far, with media outlets and think tanks, all on NSO's behalf. The law firm, uh, Pillsbury Winthrop Sean Pittman, huge major A-list law firm here in Washington, even tried to get NSO and this issue on the agenda of the meeting today between Joe Biden and the interim Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid. This is all legal, of course. Um, This is how Washington works, right? You need something done, you hire a lobbyist. But the better question is, is this the way Washington should work? Do you think that a company that has been deemed a threat to national security should have this kind of freedom and access to policymakers? You just pay the money and you get in front of members of Congress? Well, absolutely not. I mean, this is you know really Orwellian, the, the kind of stuff that this you know company has been doing. Uh, and I you know I think going back, you know, this goes back uh, several decades. I mean, there were some journalists who had tried to expose uh, this software and some of the corruption behind its development. Uh, and he was murdered. You know, a journalist named Danny Casalaro. Uh, so you know, this is really nefarious stuff. And yeah, you know, what you were describing, this surveillance. I mean, it's taking George Orwell nineteen. 19- 84 really to the next level and this is a danger to all humanity and uh, you know i think this is just horrible a horrible example of a capitalist system gone awry or as some would say maybe that is what capitalism is or or, you know these companies even if they manufacture products that are extremely harmful for humanity can just basically buy their way and buy off legislators either through lobbying or or campaign donations and get this legislation they need uh, uh to obtain you know to to get what they want and you know that's why as you know relating back to the earlier point, we really need a social revolution in the United States uh, to transform the political economy uh, and, uh, uh, you know, to link all this together that, that the capitalist system has caused all these disasters that we see and, and, and has shredded democracy. I mean, if this software is, is implemented, it's this complete shredding of democracy that the government could uh, infiltrate you, your activities in every way, which they're probably already doing, but this just takes it even further. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, it really does. I know we have to let our guest go, but I just have to tell you guys, uh, this happening, this is now two foreign trips. You saw this yes. link I sent you just now, yep. John. Another Secret Service member has been sent home after apparently getting in a fight in Israel. Yep. This happened when Joe Biden arrived in uh, South, South Korea. Korea, too. So this is what, like, Two out of three foreign trips in the last two months, a member of the Foreign Service has had to be sent home after getting into some kind of brawl. And in this one— We don't have all the details. Okay, He he was in a brawl with a woman. Oh, no. Uh Uh-huh. You shouldn't—you know what? Listen. Yeah, seriously. The guy was never taught. Don't hit girls. Yeah, don't don't hit a woman. You know, unless, like, there there are some circumstances where I I can see that. (laughs) But not not she's being sassy, but, like, she's also—you know, you, you are in a war or something like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's pretty embarrassing. Something, something's going on. You need to tighten things up over at the Secret Service. This is actually ge- genuinely say. embarrassing behavior. Yeah. Yes. Just Shame had to slide that, that in, uh, you know, tickled, tickled and also mortified. That was author Jeremy Kuzmarov. He's managing editor of Covert Action Magazine. Jeremy, it's great to have you in the studio today. Thanks. My pleasure to be here. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back. Still live in D.C., still on Radio Sputnik.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Woody here with John Kiriakou, and we are returning to the issue of the U.S. Navy's pollution of Oahu's drinking water. We have spoken about this in the past. Uh, to sum it up, the Navy secretly built a huge fuel storage facility just about 100 feet above Oahu's only aquifer and primary source of drinking water. Uh, this was built about 80 years ago. It was declassified about 50 years later, and there have been leaks ever since. I mean, I think the first documented leak was in 1947. Right. Leaks and releases from these tanks that now hold about 100 million gallons of fuel, but in the past have held much more. Health officials on the island have been calling for the storage facility to be decommissioned, saying it is unsafe, especially after a major release in 2014. Uh, But the Navy has just said, everything's fine. Guys, what are you worrying about? And so then finally, there was a major leak uh, last year in May, followed by one in November, in which so much fuel seems to have gotten into household water that people became really sick. Mm -hmm. And you can see online interviews with the wife of a military pilot talking about losing a bunch of weight, feeling sick all the time, even having a, a scare involving her heart health. And she, as she says, being told by her doctor that it was probably all in her head. Until they learned that they had been drinking jet fuel. Oh, my God. And so finally, just last month, the Navy issued a report on how these uh, these two particular leaks in 2021 came to happen. A report in the Honolulu Civil Beat starts off this way. A string of extraordinary failures in maintenance, training, and leadership at the Navy's Red Hill fuel facility resulted in fuel spewing from a broken pipeline for 30 hours, leaking petroleum into the military's drinking water, and sickening entire families last year. So we are going to get into just how extraordinary these failures actually were and uh, take a look a a little bit at the U.S. uh, military's footprint in Oahu and elsewhere in the world. We're joined by Guy McPherson. He's a scientist and professor emeritus of natural resources and ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Arizona. Guy, thanks for joining us again. Thank you, Michelle and John. I appreciate the opportunity to chat. Welcome back. I just wanted to stop and look at this term extraordinary that is being used to describe the Navy's um, activities and to ask whether you would say it is extraordinary for the U.S. military to create dangerous situations like this, to then lie both about their risks and their potential consequences for decades, to fail to avert crises before they arise, to ignore the warnings and pleas of civil leaders, and to fail to abide by their own promises when it comes to environmental protection and cleanup. I wonder if you would call that ordinary or extraordinary guy. I want to stop there too, Michelle, Mm -hmm. but I doubt any of us can stop the runaway train known as the U.S. military. This story is par for the course, of course. Government relations with the fossil fuel industry today are following the lead of the tobacco industry from the 1960s and 1970s. The U.S. military is untouchable. Consider this example in which relevant information was classified for 50 years. Mm -hmm. After the terrible news was finally reported, nothing of substance was done to rectify the situation. How many hundreds or thousands of cases remain classified today? Mm -hmm. I suspect we'll never know, although a simple online search will reveal dozens of cases not so dissimilar from this one. Mm -hmm. It's awful. Yeah. And I mean, I think the the comparison with the tobacco industry is apt, except, you know, 
at least the effects of tobacco use are are mostly confined to the the people who are using it, right? And to maybe their households. Whereas you're talking about the water source for an entire island. And so I, I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit about, you know, what has actually happened in Red Hill? What what has been done to this water source and how long the the impact could last? Right. As near as I can tell, the US Navy has done only one thing about this long time issue. Hide the facts. Mm-hmm. There are two primary issues here beyond clear violation of the United States Clean Water Act. Mm-hmm. First, the U.S. Navy could have reported the dire news so that families and individuals could make changes in their lives, such as installing a household water filtration system or moving to a new location. Second, the U.S. Navy could have actually taken actions to clean up the water. For example, strategies to separate petroleum for water have been known for many years by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. We'll ignore it for now that the U.S. Supreme Court recently ruled that the EPA is irrelevant (laughs) because that wasn't always the case. Mm -hmm. Planting trees such as poplars has been known for decades as a tool for sucking hydrocarbons out of soils. Hmm. Poplars take up the hydrocarbons as they rapidly grow, and the hydrocarbons are removed from the site with the trees. And I had a student who was working on this among my first graduate students that I worked with at the University of Arizona in the so this was in the early 1990s that he finished his degree. That's a long time ago. In addition, there's a microscopic bacterium, Alcanovorax bacumensis, that has been demonstrated to feed on hydrocarbons. This tiny organism actually consumes the hydrocarbons. So in short, the U.S. Navy could have taken actions in this case and many others. In not doing so, the U.S. Navy has committed this site and the people living there to decades and maybe even centuries of drinking poisonous water. Uh, wow. Yeah, I mean, in order to to implement these solutions that you talk about, you first have to get the, the military to admit that anything is wrong, you know, and, and historically they just refuse to do that. Over the top, uh, off the top of my head, over the past decade, you know, I can recall scandals about lead paint in U.S. military housing. Uh, there have been multiple pollution catastrophes at bases in Colorado. I think that's a site of some very serious PFP contamination or PC, PCBs. PCBs. PCBs, mm-hmm. that's what I'm thinking of. We have this. 50-year-old nuclear waste coffin in the Marshall Islands that the United States says is perfectly safe, Mm -hmm. but that Marshall Island leaders and others say is leaking and is a disaster waiting to happen. And so, you know, I wonder if if there are any other significant pollution disasters we should know about to put in context this extraordinary occurrence in Hawaii. Of course there are. Mm -hmm. We, we We will never know how many of these cases are out there because the U.S. military operates with such amazing secrecy. Mm -hmm. So, of course, there are dozens, hundreds, perhaps thousands of cases like this. The U.S. military is all over the world. It's not just in the United States. The United States military is contaminating the the planet Mm -hmm. and not being called to attention for it. Yes. I mean, this is something that consistently comes out. It came out of the um, uh, COP 23. Is that the conference? COP26 conference. Um, 26 was the latest one, yes. Yeah. Saying, you know, we are are calling uh, climate change a national security issue, but the the mechanism we have for addressing national security issues is part of the problem, you know? And so I have kind of a philosophical question for you, Guy. I am reminded of how 
fossil fuel and mining companies are treated when they have uh, what we decide to term accidents, right? Uh, Rio Tinto apologizing after it deliberately blew up to Aboriginal caves in Australia that represented tens of thousands of years of human history. You know, we have these apologies by the Navy uh, for, oh my gosh, an extraordinary series of, of human errors confined to just two individuals. You know, we have apologies from other fossil fuel companies over leaks. And they're always treated as though these accidents are anomalies rather than the predictable result of the cultures of these programs. And so, you know, we were talking about this in a political context in the previous segment. I think we have to ask, can you have a force that aims to militarily dominate the planet without also creating a culture that completely disregards local environments, right? Can you extract fossil fuels while also really caring about protecting the immediate surroundings? And so even if if we had the time, Guy, which is ignoring timelines that we have talked about on this show before, but if we had the time, can you tinker and reform these organizations? Uh, or is this a ground up change that we need, right? That sort of you cannot have a uh, global hegemony with environmental um, uh, protection and patronage. You know, U.S. President Dwight D. Eisenhower didn't call it the military industrial complex for no reason. Mm-hmm. Bear in mind that Eisenhower was a renowned military man before he was elected president. In short, the U.S. military has a long history of ignoring and subverting the political process. Mm-hmm. How does the military get a st- get away with stuff like this? They supersede politicians. Mm-hmm. George Carlin was wrong in this case. It's a small club, not a big one, and you're not in it. Mm-hmm. When it comes to matters of exceptional importance, the citizenry just doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Only the military matters. Politicians matter. Very few citizens matter. The ones that do matter have access to a lot of money. They have names like Bill Gates, Elon Musk, and Warren Buffett. This is, this is hardly a one-off situation. Mm-hmm. Consider, for example, the well-documented case of lead poisoning from lead in paint. France, Belgium, and Austria banned lead from paint in 1909. Most of the countries in Western Europe did the same by 1940. That's more than 80 years ago. Mm -hmm. The United States finally banned leaded paint in 1978, just over four decades ago. Where I live in the New England region, most houses are contaminated with lead paint. A paper published more than four years ago in the peer-reviewed journal The Lancet Public Health found that more than 400,000 people die each year from lead poisoning in this country. Mm. That's just one of many examples in the environmental arena that has escaped the attention of the masses. Mm. It's a small club, Michelle and John, and you're not in it. Yeah. Neither am I. Yeah. Is there a role? I mean, I I come back often to the the role that I think the press should have in because part of this is just you know, I think expressing it, right? Not not allowing them to get away with terms like accident or extraordinary, right? And so I wonder what you think. Is there is there a different role the press should be playing that could have some impact on how these things are treated and, you know, with the goal of, of preventing the next disaster? And the same for, for academia. Is there is there a role for, for people who can say this is this is a pattern, uh, not an anomaly? Is there is there something else that we should be doing? I think the central question here is, could we retain military dominance as a country and the mindset behind it while taking strides to protect our only home? Mm -hmm. Of course, we could. Will we? Considering the cultural mindset that money matters more than life itself, it would surprise me very much. 
I'm reminded of a phrase I coined more than 13 years ago. If you think the economy is more important than the environment, try holding your breath while counting your money. <laughs> People just aren't doing that. Nobody's <laughs> holding their breath. We're all spending money like we got no tomorrow. And as a consequence, we have very few tomorrows in front of us. It's, it's a disaster. It's been a disaster for your entire life, my entire life. Are we going to address it? It would surprise me very much. Yeah. As we said, it would, it would take it would take a, a complete shift in a mindset. Well, Guy McPherson, it was not cheerful, but I do really appreciate you joining us to, to talk about this and to talk about what the Navy has done this time in Red Hill. And uh, where is it going to be next? I, I guess we will just find out. That was scientist and professor emeritus of natural resources as an ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Arizona, Guy McPherson. Guy, do you want to tell our listeners where they can go to find anything else you're working on right now? Sure. You can find this interview and all the others I've done hundreds over the years at GuyMcPherson.com. Hey, that's Again, convenient. thanks for the opportunity, Michelle and John. I appreciate every chance to chat with you. Always good to talk to you. Yeah, we look forward to it. I'm sure it'll happen again soon. Thanks for joining us, Guy. Hey, uh, John, we have a couple of minutes before we change over the hour. And of course, I have to I wanted to slide in that story about uh, the Secret Service member getting sent home. Did you also see we have uh, Elon Musk and Donald Trump going going at each other on Twitter and Truth Social? Yeah, Trump is angry mm -hmm. that uh, Elon Musk wants out of the Twitter deal. Mm hmm. Because he thought Elon Musk was going to be a savior. Mm -hmm. And, be, you know, Elon Musk has become this sort of neo-nationalist Republican mm -hmm. after many years as a Democrat. And so Trump thought this was going to be a workable partnership. Trump would get back onto Twitter mm -hmm. and then use it going into the next uh, campaign. Let me just ask you, John. Let me ask you, where is the lie here? When Elon Musk, this is from Donald Trump's uh, Truth Social post. When he came to the White House asking me for help on all of his many subsidized projects, whether it's electric cars that don't drive long enough, driverless cars that crash, or rocket ships to nowhere, without which subsidies he'd be worthless. Now, wait, any lie in there? Any lie? I hate to say, but no, not really. No, not not <laughs> any, right? Uh, and then, he, you know, he's saying Elon Musk was telling him I was a big Trump fan. I could have said drop to your knees and beg and he would have done it. OK, I don't know about that. Maybe that's where the lie is. But certainly no lie in that description of, of Elon Musk and his many companies, I don't think. So people have been getting a, a kick out of uh, these two <laughs> goons going at each other online. And I had another story uh, that. I heard this morning on one of the morning news podcasts that I listened to that we, we don't have anywhere to, to fit in really. But did you see that Heathrow Airport oh, is yeah. asking airlines to stop selling tickets Yes, as it, it tries to limit daily passengers to 100,000 a day uh, until September 11th? Sort of a, a dire date to end on. I'll say. But um, it, it doesn't have enough resources. It doesn't have enough personnel, it's saying. To, to actually manage all of these. And, you know, we just kind of talked about this uh, when we talked about the air chaos in the United States with flights being canceled and software glitches that allowed pilots to drop flights. And, you know, at some point, this has to start affecting safety. If you are just running around, even if you even if it's something happening at the customer service, you know what I mean? Like it, it all bleeds into each other yeah. in these big organizations. And so, yeah, Heathrow has come out and said, we, you know, service drops to a level that's unacceptable. We are trying to do what we can, but we just don't have enough people and we cannot handle loads over 100,000 people a day is a lot. I don't know. I don't know when the last time was that you uh, uh, transited Heathrow. 
but it's a really crappy airport. Mm. It's got a decent duty free, but to get from point A to point B, mm-hmm. it's it's almost impossible. You get off a plane and you can't like take a a tram or a train. Mm-hmm. You have to sit or stand in this big group of people and get on a bus. Yeah. And then the uh. bus drives you to some other part of the airport and then you get off and wander around trying to figure out where you are. Having to get on a bus at an airport oh. is just a dagger to oh, the it's heart. Bad. That's so demoralizing. It's yeah, but let bad. me also tell you uh, the CNN story says the daily number of passengers going through Heathrow in 2018 was nearly 220,000. So they are trying to have um, what their recent average load was, which is right. pretty significant, right? I'll like that say. is a pretty significant shortfall in your ability to, you know, to do, to perform oh, yes. these services. Yes, indeed. Um, so yeah, I, I, you were just talking about uh, some cheap, cheap flights that I had sent you, but oh, you might right. have to think twice now about using them. <laughs> just right. don't want to go through, uh, through London or Toronto for that matter. No. Surely there's somewhere else you can transit. There's got to be. All right. We're going to take a quick break here and come back to talk about some more domestic politics, including this awful and infuriating new uh, footage from Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas. It's one thing to hear about cops standing around outside a classroom door. It's another to, to watch it. It's bad. Come back with all that here on Political Misfits, live in D.C. on Radio Sputnik. We'll talk to you in just one sec. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. The January 6th committee continued its hearings yesterday with dramatic testimony from former White House counsel Pat Cipollone. Cipollone told the committee that a meeting in the Oval Office on January 6th, 2021, led to screams, tears, and loud arguments. He said that he and others urged President Trump to concede the election, and he praised Vice President Pence's actions that day in seeking to certify the election. The committee also presented text messages, quite dramatic text messages, between former Trump aides Brad Parscale and Katrina Pearson on January 6th. Parscale, who was Trump's 2020 campaign manager, texted, quote, a sitting president asking for civil war. I feel guilty for helping him win. Unquote. To which Pearson responded, you did what you felt was right at the time, and therefore it was right. Pascal said, yeah, but a woman is dead. Pearson then responded, do you realize, you do realize this was going to happen? Pascal, yeah, if I was Trump and knew my rhetoric killed someone. Pearson said, it wasn't the rhetoric. Pascal ended saying, Katrina, yes, it was. In other news, the Secret Service said yesterday that it is aware of reports from 4chan and conservative news websites that 4chan hackers are claiming that they hacked Hunter Biden's cloud account and released graphic photos of him doing drugs while talking to a prostitute. The photos and videos have not been authenticated, and we don't know if the Justice Department is looking at the case. New video has been released showing the tepid response of Uvalde, Texas police and school police to the active shooter there on May 24th. 
Police actively held back a parent of one of the students in the school. That parent was an off-duty policeman who arrived to help rescue the children, but he was not allowed inside. And another Uvalde policeman is facing criticism for a video showing him walking over to a hand sanitizer and cleaning his hands while the gunman was inside shooting children. And finally, President Biden arrived in Israel this morning as part of a two-stop trip to the Middle East uh, to, as the White House says, shore up U.S. relations with its Middle Eastern partners. Biden will go on to Jeddah, Saudi Arabia in two days to meet with the heads of the Gulf Cooperation Council nations and Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. We're going to talk about all these different issues with Jim Cavanaugh, who is editor of the Polemicist.net. Welcome back, Jim. Hi, thanks for having me. Glad to have you, Jim. Let's start with uh, the latest hearing of the January 6th committee. Donald Trump's former aides and loyalists seem to be lining up to throw him under the bus. Uh, Pat Cipollone testified yesterday and came down solidly on the side of Mike Pence that Joe Biden's victory was properly certified. Brad Parscale, who was Trump's campaign manager, turned on him. It seems to me that the committee's goal here is to, and correct me if I'm wrong, because this is just my opinion, but it seems that the goal is to refer as many crimes as possible to the Justice Department. Liz Cheney has pulled no punches even if Benny Thompson, the committee chairman, has. And now we have reports that Trump may have engaged in witness tampering just before the last hearing. What are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, uh, screams, tears, and arguments. I always love that. Uh, but uh, <laughs> um, I, this is a, I think that's correct, that they're looking for as much as many things as they can to refer to the Justice Department for potential charges. They want charges against Trump for something, okay? You know, it's, it's, these, but these conversations with other people having among themselves are not charges against Trump. They're not no. going to be charges. Against no, Trump. they're not. <laughs> you know, this is this is headlines, and you know that's what they're looking for. And it, it astounds me to the the extent to which the Democrats are afraid of Donald Trump. Yeah. They really want to get something. They want a criminal charge against Trump, which I don't think they're going to get. <laughs> and. This is whole. This is a whole uh, political theater in order to, again, like it's Russia Gate. It's it's a bombshell. We're on the verge. The walls are closing in. Trump is going to be arrested. It's going to be, in order to kind of prevent Trump from running again, which probably I don't think he's going to do. But the fact that the Democrats are so scared of him is really bizarre, in, you know, and, and, and something that people should notice. I think, you know, uh, my I've written about January 6th, my article, American Fuss Unravels. I think uh, they're, they're making, and it's dangerous what they're doing, you know. Yeah. Donald Trump was terrible. The Democrats are doing the anti-Trump Democratic strategy. It's worse. Russiagate was bad. Yep. This is bad. This is sedition. I mean, you read the statute on sedition. They're going to be able to to bring anybody they want up on charges of if you steal something from the government, it's sedition. Yeah. Well, if you if you encourage rebellion against lawful authority, it's sedition. So, you know, they're going to be, this is something that they do not understand. This is Liz Cheney. They're not going to control the Congress. <laughs> you know, they're going after and will go after, and they are going after people who are dissidents of any kind, people who give speeches. This is what the, the I think it was Rennie Davis in the Chicago 7. You gave yeah. a speech saying, Riling people up, and then they went and they, they rioted. That's your fault. You right. know how many 
speeches have left leftists and black liberation protesters given saying any by any means necessary go fight you know uh, and they're going to come after all of they're creating the groundwork for criminalizing domestic dissent and they seem to think that they can do that and 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 they'll control everything all the time and uh you know they can censor away anybody who wants to complain about it as being a right-wing extremist so I, I'm, I think this whole, but it's a political theater, but it's a dangerous political theater that's not going to get Donald Trump uh, convicted of anything and not going to prevent him from running if he wants to. Right. I think at the end of the day, he won't. Agreed. And you've anticipated my next question. These committee members have so far unofficially accused Trump of witness tampering and obstruction of justice from the very beginning. Um, Bruce Fine, who the constitutional attorney who we have on the show every once in a while, believes that Trump... Uh, is liable for a, a charge of attempted murder because of the the whole hang Mike Pence uh, response. That's not going to happen. But a major charge against Trump would be sedition. And like you said, you know, I I went back and and read what what uh, the language is in the Constitution about sedition. Do you think there's enough evidence of sedition, real sedition, to make a referral to the Justice Department? Well, as I say, I, mean, I read the the the. the... U.S. code on it uh, today. Let me see if I can get this up right. And, you know, there's enough evidence they can bring this charge against someone if they want. It's like bringing espionage charges against Julian Assange. You know, they can do that if they want. Uh, but it's it's extremely dangerous that anybody would want to get involved in that. So, uh, and I don't think they're going to do it. Uh, uh, you know, if, if one or more persons here it is subject to the jurisdiction of the United States conspire to overthrow, put down, or destroy the, by force the government, uh, or delay the execution of any law, mm-hmm. or, or uh, seize any property, etc. So you can, you know, he wanted to delay the execution of a law. You know, that's you can, uh, you know, prosecutor, any prosecutor can uh, uh, indict with a, you know, a ham sandwich. Yeah, and this is, you know, they could do that if they want. Sure. But, you know, what is the political point of that? What are you doing? Yeah. This is an attempt. Because they cannot win the political battle because they don't have a political program that's a pole of attraction to turn it into a litigation battle and a criminal battle. Yeah. And it's exactly what they did with it. This is impeachment three. Well, let's, guys, let's, let's talk about uh, impeachment four. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> let's talk about Hunter Biden, uh, because this is another guy who finds himself in trouble and of his own making. Um, as I said in the opening, 4chan hackers are claiming that they got into Hunter Biden's uh, cloud account, and they've released pictures and video of him apparently smoking crack and meth with a prostitute, uh, going down a water slide naked. I don't know why that was even in the article, but that's what it said. And claiming that his father owns five guns while campaigning for gun control. Um, Hunter Biden has so far proven to not be the brightest bulb in the box. But after that laptop fiasco, Jim, um, is it even possible that he's stupid enough to have this kind of evidence of criminal behavior in his, in his cloud account? Who, who videotapes (laughs) themselves weighing their crack? Right. (laughs) And then you save it for posterity, for posterity in the cloud. (laughs) (laughs) Bring it out to show the kids. And he has he has a there's a video of him waving naked waving his gun and everything else around. Yeah, it's 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 so bad, and you know that that's uh, uh, you know that's uh, uh, entertainment value only. 
but there was, you know, someone did a really good mashup. Uh, uh, there's a video out there which has a split screen with Biden doing his crack smoking routine and Hunter on, on the right side and Joe on the left side talking in the Senate, bragging about anybody with a quarter size crack <laughs> is going to go to prison for five <laughs> years. We have to lock them away. They have to be off the street. And so you know, that's that's what's going to come back on, on, on Joe. And it's going to campaign at, I guarantee you, uh, because he wanted to put all the poor and black people who smoke crack. Yes. Minimum five cent, five year sentence. Yes. His son, who was smoking crack on the millions of dollars that he got as a result of Joe Biden's political influence, uh, what, what, what's going to happen to him? So it's it's that's going to be a bad that's a bad thing. And and the other thing that could come back on on Biden is this business of him knowing about his son's dealings with China, which is certainly implied with him saying, "I think you're in the clear on that." Yes. So the, those are legitimate political things that can be in ways in which this can be used against Joe Biden. The rest of the, the hookers and blow stuff is, you know, entertainment. Agree completely. Uh, moving over to Uvalde, the Uvalde Police Department and the Uvalde School District Police Department, um, it seems, did literally nothing right on the day of, uh, of this mass killing, the day the gunman killed 19 people, including 17 children, May 26th. We now have even more damning video of the cops asleep at the switch while these children were being killed. There have been a couple of resignations uh, in the police departments, but are we going to see anything more serious here? I mean, we were all infuriated today when we saw the video of this cop just kind of nonchalantly walking over to the hand sanitizer and, and cleaning his hands and then going back to where he had originally been standing. They're all just standing around for 77 minutes while this kid is in there, you know, shooting children, fourth graders. Um, I think every American wants heads to roll on this, but are there any heads to roll? Are we going to see anything more serious? Did these cops commit crimes that they can be prosecuted for? Is this depraved indifference or something like that? I don't know what the legal issue here is, and I doubt it really could be a legal issue. Yeah. Uh, you know, but it's horrible. It's horrible. They were in. They were in there outside of the door of the classroom for like an hour. They tried to get a key from the maintenance guy, and they went to another classroom door to try and try the keys out. Meanwhile, they had. First of all, they had a tool that they could have used to break in the door right away. Yeah. Secondly, it turns out the door was open. It probably wasn't locked. They didn't even try it. Yeah. And, and they were getting messages. Parents were coming. Uh, there was one that, 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 I don't know who this guy you're talking about came because he got a text message, but there's one guy in a text message from his wife saying yeah. he's in here. He's going, I'm going to die. He, he's killing people. The kids were saying, I, he's shooting people. And they didn't go in. I mean, this is, it's really horrible. And uh, I think the, the guy who's, Got the text message. He came and he tried to get in. He yes. went home and got a gun. He was a cop too and tried to get in. They wouldn't let him in. They wouldn't let him in. There. Right. And, the, and it was horrible. I mean, I, I'd be killing people left and right myself. But, you know, uh, so this is one of these things. You know, I forget one of the great moments was Richard Clark in the, in, in, after 9 11. It's like, we failed you. Your government failed you. And I failed you. And this is the kind of thing you need to hear from these people. Yeah. You know, this is what happened. There's no excuse for this. You know, there's all kinds of terrible decisions that have to be made at the time. Sometimes it's a good thing to hold back. But when you know that he's he, kids and 
teachers are sending out text messages saying he is shooting us. Mm-hmm. You got to go in, period. Yeah. And the first one, they have bulletproof shields. They go in. If the guy shoots dead, the first or second or third cop that goes in, the fourth or the fifth or the sixth is going to take him out. That's right. And that's the price you pay. That's, that's right. What, otherwise, what are they there for? Exactly right. Mm-hmm. That's what they're being paid to do. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have the guts or the wherewithal, no problem. There are a lot of people who don't want to do work like there that. So Find many another job. Other jobs you can do. Exactly. Where you even get to push people around. You exactly. Know? Be a manager. You can be, go a, be a manager guard. at a fast food restaurant. Yeah. And, you know, be the jerk that you dream of being. That's right. But yeah, it's a. It's it's. It, it, extraordinary to watch this as i say we don't we don't learn anything new from this footage right no but no to to actually witness it and see and just watch as more and more people come and stand in that hallway and get this shield and that shield and talk and you know sort of of mill around again all knowing knowing that this is going on it is horrifying to watch yes Yes, indeed and shouldn't probably be treated as an anomaly no no i think you're right uh Jim, Joe Biden arrived in Israel this morning. The news networks all showed him shaking hands with Benjamin Netanyahu, with the interim prime minister, Yair Lapid, and others. Um, he went to the Holocaust Memorial and uh, and the Holocaust Museum and did all the, you know, the high-end tourist things. We know that Biden and the Israelis are very interested in a regional defense agreement of some sort. Uh, they've already talked about, and they've already met with the Moroccans, the Egyptians, the Jordanians, the Emiratis, um, the Bahrainis, what the Israelis would really like is an agreement that includes Saudi Arabia. Is that on the table for this trip? Do you think the Saudis would be willing to talk about something like that? You know, I I think the Saudi regime, the Saudi monarchy, doesn't need the the grief that would come from officially recognizing Israel, from actually completely normalizing relations, they get along fine with Israel as it is. Yeah. They cooperate with the United States. They're completely uh, complicit with everything that Israel and the United States do in the region anyway. You know, So from their point of view, why should we take the heat we will take from our population? We'll be discredited more in the eyes of the Arab world. Uh, and and we don't need it. <laughs> you know. And what do you have to offer us at this point? Yeah. Uh, they want to get... They want to act with against Iran, but now you see you have another element that's made that, that's entered the picture, which is now we're starting to re- they're realizing the power they have and every uh, the, the the power that the oil producing nations have. Yeah, and you're saying why maybe we should uh, not break our ties with Russia and the oil producing community. Maybe we should. It's a very delicate thing. So I don't. I don't. You know, what they'd like to get out of this is normalization with with Saudi Arabia between Saudi Arabia and Israel. I'd like to get is some kind of you know Arab NATO that's anti-Iranian. I don't think they're going to get it. And what it and one of the things it is is uh, you know and in a certain extent you know first of all Biden is pursuing and strengthening a policy that was Donald Trump. Oh yeah, this is a Trump policy. Yeah, definitely. I like to use the term Abraham Accords because I don't want to give. Mm-hmm. Credit to Trump, yeah. but this is Donald Trump's achievement from the point of view of the American ruling class and the Zionist elements thereof. And Biden is pursuing that and accepting it and working on it. And let's recognize again: this is a continuation of Donald Trump's policies by by Joe Biden. Yeah. Uh, and you know, at the end of the day, uh, but it's also now taking place where in in a, in a context where 
the outcome of American power is on, in question in a very radical way in the world. So why don't people, what does Saudi Arabia gain by not hanging back and see what comes? That's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, in the in the Sunday Washington Post, uh, Joe Biden or. Well, I was going to say wrote an op-ed. He didn't write the op-ed. His staff did, of course. But in this op-ed, he outlined why he was going to Saudi Arabia. Uh, He's going to go day after tomorrow. It sounded weak to me. Uh, The goal was reaffirming our ties to our allies in the region. Uh, That doesn't mean anything. Frankly, our relations, with the exception of Saudi Arabia, our relations with all of the region's um, allies are already very strong. Uh, Biden wants the Saudis, we know, to pump more oil. They say that they can't. He wants the Saudis to join a defense alliance that includes Israel. They won't. That's not going to be a surprise to anybody. Why else go to Saudi Arabia? It just seems to me that the that the chances for failure are so much greater than the chances for success here. I'm not sure why he would do this trip. Well, that's a good point. You know, I, I, you're right. He's got to come out. I think minimally, with we're going to get more oil, <laughs> yeah. you know, or it's going to be a political failure. Uh, you know, because most of the American people aren't going to care much about anything else. I mean, the Saudis and the Israelis care about you know some kind of anti-Iranian alliance, but the American people want to get more oil. They want the price of oil to go down, and you know. Uh, I just don't. He's he's got so many things. You know, he's claiming. I love when he claims. I'm going to bring up Khashoggi. You know, he's going. To, I guarantee you, he's not going to say a word about Khashoggi. And then yeah, the MBS. Will, yeah. The MBS will walk out of the room. <laughs> I, you're exactly right. And, Nothing's going to happen. And, and 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 he can't afford. They are in control of this. The MBS can walk out of the room anytime he wants. You know, and so it's a very it's it is a risky politically risky thing for him. I don't. You know, I, I think that. But one of the things we have to recognize what the Israelis Israelis are on. Uh, on a rampage in the West Bank. They are taking over, you know, uh, more and more Palestinian land, putting in more and more settlements. They're starting to say, we're going to just go forward with this. Screw everybody else. They kill American American journalist, Shireen Abu Akla. Mm-hmm. Nothing comes of it. You know, they're mm-hmm. saying we got it. In the context of, of the disruption and the, uh, the, the upheaval in the world, we're going to go forward as quickly as we can. And that's a danger politically for, for Biden. So he, he's in the midst of a lot of crap going in here, and he's not in control of it, and it's politically very risky. And I, if he doesn't come back with, I've got, I got you I got you X billion million barrels, barrels more oil per month, it's going to be a net loss for him, I think, politically. I, I think you're right. Hey, uh, by any chance, have you been following the the trial of Joshua Schulte, the Vault 9, uh, the person accused of releasing the Vault 9 documents to WikiLeaks? He's been, uh, he's been on trial for the last two weeks in New York. He's representing himself, which I thought was a very bad idea. And I mentioned this in the, um, in the opening to the show. Uh, but the, the case went to the jury on Friday. Uh, they took the weekend off, but they've deliberated part of Friday, all day, Monday, all day, Tuesday. They had a question on Monday that the judge answered. They came back today. They came back actually 30 minutes ago and said that they don't have a verdict, but they have another question. And, uh, the judge, uh, had Schulte brought back into court 
They asked their question. The judge gave them an answer that Schulte did not object to. And now they're going back uh, to to deliberations. The judge said something kind of funny. He said, I'll see you at 445 if I don't see you earlier, meaning he would expect them to have a verdict before 445. Um, But Inner City Press, which is literally the only outlet, it's a small independent little news service. It's actually one guy. Um, They're the only ones covering this. They've been reporting that it looks like the jury might be hung. And this is what happened the first time that Schulte was was tried. He was acquitted on two minor felonies, obstruction of justice, and I think the other was making a false statement. They found him not guilty. And then they hung on all the espionage charges. So this is the retrial on the espionage charges, uh, and they're jammed up again. Now, normally I'd say that's a victory. But what they did this time to Schulte is they claim that they found child pornography on his computer. Very, very disturbing to me. But the reason why it gives me pause is they said the same thing about Matt DeHart, the Army whistleblower. And they made him pre-trial. They made him register as a sex offender. And then when the judge said that, well, you you haven't turned over in discovery any of the information on the child pornography. It turned out there was no child pornography. They made it up so that he would be held, with, held without bond. In the Julian Assange case, it wasn't child pornography, but it was two uh, sex crime charges that got him held up in the very first place. And now we've got an accusation of child pornography against Schulte. Um, I'm wondering if this is a strategy that the Justice Department is using now, where in order to make it tougher on the defendant, you accuse him of child pornography, even if there's no evidence of it. Now, they they haven't charged him with child pornography. They said that they're going to hold those charges in reserve, see what the results are of this this latest uh, iteration of the espionage case. And frankly, if he wins, then they'll charge him with child pornography. What do you what do you think is going on here? I mean, I I hate to be as cynical as I sound right now, but I wouldn't put anything past the Justice Department. Do you think that this is a tactic now having seen it with Assange, with Matt DeHart and with Schulte? Is the Pope a Catholic? Yeah, I mean, see, there I, it is. I, 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 I don't. I like. I don't hate to be a cynical, as you said, because it's uh, it's necessary. You, you you laid it all out. I mean, they know what buttons to push. You know, this is again. They've been after this guy for how long? And they just discovered child pornography. Right. Right. You know, they had gone through every every bit and bite of data that he had on his computer and or phone or cloud. 50,000 times and they just discovered child pornography. So, you know, they know what buttons to push. They yeah. know what, what issues are going. You, you don't have to, you don't have to, you don't have to charge them even. You, not only, you have to have to prove them. You don't have to actually charge them. All you have to do is put the headline in the press and people are going to back off. Yeah. Julian Assange was never formally charged with anything. No. He was the subject of a preliminary investigation 
for like seven years. That's right. They had all the evidence, everything they needed, except talking to him, which they could have done before he left Sweden. They told him to go ahead and leave. And they could have done any time afterwards by going to going. But they didn't want to do that because they didn't want to press. They didn't want to bring him to court. They wanted the cloud of a possible rape charge to be over his head. That's right. And everybody assumed that there actually was a possible rape charge, which there wasn't. <laughs> now that's the same kind of thing. Oh, sec, we found child pornography. Okay, we're not going to show it to you yet. We're not going to give it to the judge yet. Right? But, you know, trust us. Uh-huh. <laughs> and if we need to, we'll pull it out later on. Yeah. So, you know, these are terrible charges that they found child pornography. Of course, that's a terrible thing. But I don't trust them at all. No, I don't either. I don't either. All righty, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us, Jim Cavanaugh. Jim is the editor of the polemicist.net. Check out his work at polemicist.net. We're going to have him back again soon. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We have some politics coming up. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. The New York Times released a poll this morning that shows that while Republicans are still likely to win control of the House of Representatives, the final result may not be the romp that the party was hoping for, showing a split of 41% of Americans favoring a generic Democrat for the House versus 40% favoring a generic Republican. This is largely due to the Supreme Court's recent decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Redistricting and gerrymandering make it nearly impossible for Democrats to maintain control, and many Americans say they are also tired of the duopoly's constant bickering. Many Americans believe it's time for a viable third party. Politico reported today that outgoing Republican Representative Adam Kinzinger and outgoing Democratic Representative Dan Lipinski, both of Illinois, are in talks about working with former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang's new forward party. And on Capitol Hill, there's talk of West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin running for president as an independent, along with a Republican as his vice presidential nominee. Three new polls carried out by Reuters, Rasmussen, and Politico, show Joe Biden's approval rating mired at 38, 39, and 40 percent, respectively. And the expected race among Republicans is tightening up. The New York Times has it at Trump 49, DeSantis 25, Cruz 7, Pence 6, and Haley 6. Nobody else had more than 1%. And I can't let the opportunity pass to update our listeners on the latest from Georgia's Republican Senate nominee, Herschel Walker. You're going to love this. <laughs> According to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is how Herschel Walker explained his views on climate change over the weekend to a group of Republican activists. I'm so excited. Quote. I can't wait for this. We don't control the air. Our good air decided to float over to China's bad air. So when China gets our good air, their bad air has got to move. So it moves over to our good air space. Then, now, we've got to, we need to clean that back up. He's really turning things around. That, that's some fresh new thinking right there. I mean, you know what? 
Kamala Harris comes out with similar similar statements occasionally. Uh, yeah, obviously terrible. Don't let there, me derail your segment oh here. There, there was a wonderful um, op-ed yesterday in the Washington Post uh, about Herschel Walker saying, if the Republicans can get Herschel Walker elected to the U.S. Senate, the country is in far worse shape than any of us imagined it was. I don't well, didn't think we feel they that will. way with Donald Trump when he got elected. Many people, but but yeah. you know what though, Trump for, Trump for all his for all his negatives mm-hmm. and for all his bankruptcies has actually you know successfully run a business. He's developed yeah, property. He's exactly, he wealth. had a background. Yeah, he had a background. And no, then, you know, his dad gave yeah. him a million dollars or ten million dollars or whatever it was to start out. I get it. But Herschel Walker, yeah, it's you know, Herschel Walker said um, that he was a, a law enforcement officer. No, no, he wasn't. He, well, he also said he owned lots of, uh, he said he's the largest owner of chicken restaurants chicken of restaurants, any black man yeah. in America. It's mm-hmm. not true. No, it's not. He true. said that he graduated from college. No, he didn't. And everybody knows that he didn't because it was national news oh. that he left college early to enter the NFL draft. So he, he, he gave two interviews, one to Charlie Kirk and another to Glenn Beck. Um, in which he talked about the the demise of the uh, nuclear family in the African-American community. And he was railing on black men who uh, don't remain in the home to to raise their children. And then had to and admit last week that he's got three children, three yeah. children that he hasn't previously acknowledged. And one of them, who's and now he's also 10, very pro-life, he had to, right? he had to go to court and <laughs> yeah. defend himself. Mm-hmm. because he's never paid child support for that child. Okay, so this is the problem that Republicans have, right? You know, have the babies and then don't take care of them once right. they're once they're bored, That's right? Not it's being like pro-life. it's all about it's all about the fetus. Right. But once the baby's born, you're on your own. You got to like you got to have a business plan. Before before we get into some of these uh, stories, did you guys happen to see uh, this woman who got stopped in Texas in an HOV yes, lane? Yes, yes, I saw this story. I, I thought this was so great. Mm-hmm. This woman is in an HOV lane. She gets stopped and ticketed for driving by herself in an HOV lane. She said, I'm not alone. I'm pregnant. Mm-hmm. And Texas law says that life begins at conception. So there are two of us in the car. Well, the cop wrote her the ticket anyway. And she's going to court to challenge the ticket because she's saying to Republicans, you can't have it both ways. Either it's a child or it's not a child. It can't be a child sometimes when it fits your politics and then not be a child when you want to write a a ticket for driving in the HOV lane. You know what I think? Yeah. I I thought that was the way to go. I think this is kind of what concerns the Justice Sean Roberts. You know, he was like, hey, this is getting really extreme and you guys overturned Roe. We're overturning Roe. So did he. He voted to yeah, overturn Roe. Yeah, I know, Roe. but I mean, in his kind of opinion about it, he was saying, you know, we could have upheld Dobbs at the 15-week and yeah. then not completely have eviscerated Roe because you're overturning huge landmark decision. Mm-hmm. It's going to create so many, un- you know, unanticipated, unintended consequences. Yeah. That, and this is like a small example of what's coming. It's just a mess. I want to talk about the presidential race mm. first. You know, usually we get down in the weeds, mm-hmm. these Senate and House races. Let's talk about the presidential race. I think it has been dramatically quick that we went from 
Joe Biden is running for reelection, period, mm-hmm. to Gavin Newsom telling his friends, I'm running for president. Um, <clears throat> you know, mm-hmm. Kamala Harris was forced to go back on what she said, that Joe Biden will be the nominee and I will be his running mate. And then she's like, uh, well, if Joe he Biden runs. intends to run to, and if he runs, I would like to be his mm-hmm. nominee, hopefully, you know, or what, and that wasn't really what she said, but you, you get my, my drift. So, um, now we've got other Democrats saying, well, you know, maybe it won't hurt to at least explore the idea by maybe talking to some of the mega donors. Or maybe doing a a quiet poll mm-hmm. just to decide if the former governor of Montana, mm-hmm. for example, mm-hmm. should run for president. Or Charlie Crist, congressman and former governor of Florida, ought mm-hmm. to drop out of the race against DeSantis and consider running for president. Um, what do you think? Do you think in your gut, I know you don't have any inside information, mm-hmm. neither do I, but in your gut, do you think Joe Biden is going to run for reelection? Ugh. So this is the thing, you know, I'm looking at the New York Times poll that we're about to discuss further. Right. And what Nate Cohen was saying in a podcast this morning is that many Democrats are very upset over Joe Biden. His approval ratings are lower than even Donald Trump's were at his lowest point. But so many people are confronted with the choice of a Democrat or Republican because we live in a post-row world right now. The polls are indicating that many of those voters just may suck it up once again and vote for somebody, vote for Joe Biden. Right. 92% of Democrats in this poll said that if confronted with the matchup again with Joe Biden running, yeah. that they would vote for him. Right. So I, th- I think that if there was a viable candidate that stood up that could replace Joe Biden— those folks would migrate. I don't think necessarily people are attached to Joe Biden. I think it's more of a vote of, I don't want a Republican. I think that's right. And one of the things that the New York Times points out in this poll is that there are two Americas mm-hmm. when it comes to the issues. I thought this was fascinating. 67% of Democrats said that gun control mm-hmm. and abortion were the two most important mm-hmm. issues. said protecting our democracy was the most important issue. That wasn't even on the radar. No, Mm -hmm. but among Republicans, among Republicans, beginning of the year, the um, the top issue is inflation, Mm -hmm. and the second issue was other, Uh, other, (laughs) which the New York Times says is a compendium of social issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're we're talking past each other. Mm-hmm. In this country, we can't even agree on what the most important issues are. Yeah. Well, so I generally, the most right. important issue has been is typically in campaigns, at least my impression of it is the economy. It's a driving thing, a dr- you know, um, but Always. the headlines have been driving uh, the I think the polls to some extent because of the recent news with Roe, the, all the mass shootings with guns. It's in the headlines. People are thinking about it. and. Is this going to hold? I mean, if there isn't as many mass shootings as we go into the fall, you know, is the economy going to become more of a forefront issue? It's just going to be interesting to see how how much these uh, polls stick. 
But it's looking to me, because I have thought this since the beginning of the year, and we talked about this during our first political segment, that the issue of abortion was not on the radar for voters. It didn't show up as an important issue. Mm -hmm. Then in the spring, it ticked up to about 10 to 13 Mm percent. And now it's included in that third, you know, of general voters, not just Democrats, but Democrats and Republicans. So it's moving up in terms of the ranks of being important because Republicans generally, most of them are in favor of some access to abortion, you know, with strict, you know, some restrictions. But uh, so I think that's going to change things and we're not going to have the most um, typical election. I I said a minute ago that there are two Americas Mm -hmm. and the country is divided. Uh, the numbers that the that the New York Times puts up are stark. For example, um, females solidly Democratic, males solidly Republican, mm. uh, whites solidly Republican, uh, people of color solidly Democratic, uh, ages eighteen to forty four solidly Democratic, forty five to sixty five plus solidly Republican. And even an education, college grads, solidly Democratic, and no four-year degrees, solidly Republican. Honest to God, I've never seen an electorate as divided as this one, ever. And I mean, I've been following this stuff since 1982. Yeah. It's kind of like the economy, you know, like where the rungs to social, you know, being able to climb the social ladder or becoming wider and more distant. Yes, indeed. It's like, you know, the Chasm and... And the debates and the politics are becoming wider and people are becoming more distant. And yeah, it's it's a problem. Um, and the polls are indicating it looks like a lot of non-working work that the Democrats are continuing to lose uh, the multicultural working class voter. More folks are moving over to the Republican Party, especially Hispanics, especially Hispanics. It's it's down to a plurality now, not a majority anymore, but a plurality of Hispanics consider themselves to be Democrats. But it's under 50 percent. Yet more college educated voters mm-hmm. are becoming Democrat. I mean, there were a lot of there were yeah, some, it's it's flip. it's flipping. Yeah. And that is really the voting class. Right. So. How I'm looking at this is what are the Democrats going to do? They're going to start focusing on that white college educated voter again because they're the reliable voter. They need them during the midterm. And, you know, they're going to other groups and uh, they're saying, you know, what have you done for me lately? Mm -hmm. You come out and you want my vote during the midterm and then that's it. Mm -hmm. And the Mm -hmm. problem for Democrats is we keep saying, and this is something that Nate Cohen mentioned in his poll. It's not that the Democrats have a messaging problem. They've had a, an actual solutions problem. Yeah. And so much of it is the infighting within the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. It's been Manchin and Sinema not and Biden not being able to get through the legislation they've been trying to mm-hmm. get through, the social safety net stuff. Yeah. And that's really what's hurting Democrats is the Democrats. Well, let's, let's talk about that. Um, as I said in the opening, um, Adam Kinzinger and uh, and uh, Lipinski, what's his first name? Uh, um, oh, I just had it here. Anyway, we'll just pretend it's Dan, Dan Lipinski. Dan Lipinski, <laughs> Dan, cutting it up on Dan the Lipinski. Right, Dan Lipinski 
Well, Kinzinger is not running for re-election because he voted in favor of the of the uh, impeachment of Donald Trump twice, and his poll numbers fell through the floor. And it's a Republican district, and they're going to throw him out. Mm-hmm. So he announced he's not running for re-election. Lipinski also announced that he's not running for re-election. But there's this odd law in um, in Illinois that if you if you make any move to identify as the member of a party. Even if it's just signing a petition for somebody else to get on the ballot, you're not allowed to run as an independent. Yeah. How crazy is that? I never heard of such a thing. No, that's I just learned this today. Mm -hmm. So Lipinski um, can't team up as an independent with Kinzinger yet. He needs to go a full year now without doing anything on behalf of the Democratic Party. and. They're talking about joining forces with Andrew Yang Mm -hmm. with this. I didn't even know he had formally created this forward party. I knew he was talking about it, but I didn't realize that it was actually a party. Um, But do you think, you know, Michelle made an important point before the show started. We were talking about this. We were talking about Manchin and a Republican, but it just comes down to there's no change. No, I mean, sure. It's, it's no. the Democrats and it's the Republicans and then on. a combination of Democrats mm-hmm. and Republicans. And you can carry the banner in, but what does it actually yeah. what, what does, does that mean? What does that actually uh-huh. mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Oh. So I, we've talked also about financing um, over the last several months. And one of the things that the libertarians always complained about when I was traveling around with them was that they don't have a benefactor. There was one billionaire, I think I mentioned to you, I don't even know his name, but they called him the king of canned tomatoes. He made billions of dollars on canned tomatoes. He owns all the tomato fields in California. So he gave them some money and they bought a they bought a Winnebago that we used to travel around in. Uh, But that's it. That party has no money. And the Greens have a fraction of what the libertarians have. So kudos to Andrew Yang. I wish him all the best. But. If you don't have money, and I mean lots of money, like billions of dollars, you're not going to be a viable party. Also, you know, why try at the top of the ticket? I keep saying this. It's yeah. like, if you want to really make Start some the inroads, there are so many important races right now. Secretary of State, Attorney General, District yeah. Attorney Office, you yeah. know, and Uvalde, that sh- the shooting that we keep talking about, the massacre in Texas. Over the weekend, there was a protest and a voter registration drive. And a lot of people were asked, like, you know, what are you going to vote about? And they said, Secretary, you know, they're yeah. looking at the sheriff. They're they're looking at the, all these small ballot yeah. races. Mm-hmm. And that's where that's where the activism is so yeah. important. And that's where the power And that's rests. where a third party could kill it. You know, I think, I, I, but, I've told you and before. And I think it's such a waste of resource and fodder to talk about this idea of running a third party president without having the infrastructure. Within you know, the state can you houses? imagine having a third party president with literally nobody in Congress and, to usher and through your agenda? And who would they caucus agenda? with? Yeah. I mean, what would that be like legislatively? Think about that. See, that that's why in order to work, it has to be something like the British system where yes. you've got you've got two main parties, but neither one of them has a majority and you have to cobble together a coalition Mm -hmm. with another party that really is in the center of the other two. Mm -hmm. Of course, the Democrats are right of center and the Republicans are right of center. Yeah, we 
do not need a party between Democrats no. and Republicans. <laughs> no. We need one on we, the left. Yes. That's mm-hmm. what we need. Yeah. We yes. need one on the we left. Do. We need to stop the looking Democrats for the mythical, mythical untapped place between Democrat and Republican yeah. where we can really do things together. It doesn't. That's not a real thing. No, you're right. Yeah. You look at the. At, but otherwise, great. great. Just compare <laughs> compare um, uh, convention platforms over the last, you know, 20, mm-hmm. 40 years. And um, what the Democrats stand for today, you could pull right out of Richard Nixon's party platform of 1972. Or more uh, Reagan. Ronald Reagan's. Yeah. Yeah. Uh That's what's happened. And now when you talk about, you know, when you when you talk about, you know, who's voting for whom you you talk about people, you know, people without college degrees voting for Republicans because they're the ones who benefit when Republicans are in power because they have more money. Because yes. all you are ever fighting for is is tax cuts, really, because mm-hmm. nothing else, at least over the last decade, you know, since the ACA was passed, which is, uh, you know, extremely limited in its benefit, although did some yeah. things. But basically, that's it. And so it's like, well, if there's a Republican in power, I'm going to have an extra five hundred dollars maybe at the end of the year. Yes. And they're not wrong. Right. You know, and you're bringing up a really important point because we talk about the voter class, right? People that are college educated. We can be worried about, you know, guns, abortion and these things as political issues. But if you're paycheck to paycheck, mm-hmm. yep. it's a kitchen table stuff. Now it's inflation. It's costing you more to go to the store. Yeah. It's costing you more to drive to work in the morning. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. We only have a couple of minutes left, so I want to talk uh, really quickly about these presidential polls. So just since we started talking, another one has come out. Uh, We've got the New York Times uh, poll, and a a new one just came out done by Politico and Morning Consult. So the New York Times has Trump 49, DeSantis 25, Cruz 7, Pence and Haley both at 6, and then Cheney, of all people, Rubio and Pompeo at two, Scott, Romney, Christie, Hogan, and Holly, zero. Wow. Zero. It's wild how um, high uh, Trump is still. Now, how but, has he slipped any but in the last he poll? he has slipped. He's gone from 56 okay. to 54 to 51 to 49. That could be the January 6th effect. It could be. And yeah. this New York Times poll says that 19% of Republicans, 19% of Republicans said that they will not vote for Donald Trump under any circumstances. Okay, 5% is enough to swing an election. 19%. I'm, I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. I don't think Donald Trump no, is going to run. No, he's not running. We got the timestamp so. on that. Uh, so this other political <laughs> poll, the numbers are close, a little bit better for Trump. Uh, Trump, 52, DeSantis, 21, Pence, 8, Haley, 3, Cruz, 2, Cheney, 2, and then Rubio, Pompeo, uh, Romney, Christie, Hogan, all 1. It's all the same cast Scott, of characters, isn't Scott it? Scott and Holly, yeah. uh, 0. <laughs> yeah, same cast of characters. It's, a, it's funny how Cruz keeps running for president, you know? Well, yeah. you know, I think his mom told him that he should run. Yeah. I think she said, honey, you should be president. And that's why he runs. Because <laughs> God knows nobody else is voting for him. I don't know. That's just my own thought. Okay. We're going to take one more small break and then come back with some closing stories. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we've got a few minutes left with you. And so we have a few headlines to share with you. And this one caught my eye, John. This is from late on Monday. But the Department of Health and Human Services had issued what it's calling clarifying guidance to doctors. Did you see this? That no. Abortions are considered part of life-saving emergency medical care. And so— uh, this guidance, the the idea, uh, according to Secretary Javier Becerra, uh, is that the federal guidance should override any state law. So regardless of what state law says, if uh, a pregnant person comes in in an emergency and the thing that will save their life or end the emergency is an abortion uh, in no uncertain terms, uh, the letter said we are reinforcing that we expect providers to continue offering these services. So. Good. Yeah, I mean that is that you know we we talked about this that executive order that uh, Joe Biden signed I think on Friday mm-hmm. right Yes man I really kept thinking it was it was just on Monday but my week is all scrambled <laughs> because we were off yesterday um, but yes yeah, so the guidance says if a physician believes a pregnant patient in an emergency department is experiencing an emergency medical medical condition and abortion is the stabilizing treatment the physician must provide that treatment mm-hmm. so this is an attempt to. Uh, override laws in states where they're going to try to consider uh, the fetus a a person from the moment of conception and perhaps deny people life-saving care. Yeah. This is maybe the most concrete thing that I recall from that executive order. Because I remember we talked about it. It was a lot of, you know, we're going to shore up this and reinforce that and commission a report on this, which is not necessarily a criticism because there isn't a whole lot. No, you can necessarily now that the court do has made its decision. Right. I mean, the, there's a lot of stuff that Joe Biden simply isn't going to do. Um, and so, you know, it, I, I guess this I'm not even going to say it's better than nothing. I suppose it is better than nothing. But again, of course, it just it, it, it is still leaves all of this to the discretion of physicians in these different states. And that's not a position you want to be in if you come in uh, with, with a medical emergency. I did see that. um so far, at least one of the manufacturers of these morning after pills or whatever, whatever they're called, mm-hmm. I'm going to have to educate myself. Which um, ones? There's morning after pills and then there are abortion pills. Abortion pills. Yeah. Okay. Which are different. Have, have made a preliminary inquiry with the FDA to start the process to take these pills off prescription and make them over the counter. Mm-hmm. I think that would be a, a great step forward. Yes. Except, you know, I mean, this is kind of the problem with uh, putting so, like, sure, this is very safe, but it's still still things, bad things can happen. Oh, yeah. Right. Things can go wrong. Sure. Uh, this is still, so, you know, it, it is so unfortunate that we're in a situation where we're going, yeah, OK, look, we can do more medical care at home, uh, not under the supervision of any of any doctor or in right. any kind of medical facility. Isn't that great? I mean, it'd be yeah, much it better. Be it'd be much better to be uh, taking these pills, having either a medical abortion or, of course, a surgical abortion mm-hmm. uh, with a doctor present. And someone who ex- is expecting you to check in, right? Yeah. And who is there to offer you guidance at every stage of the process, right. you know? And so with this move toward um, tracking your own wellness and telemedicine and all of this stuff, we yes. are just further and further removed from actual expert care, Yeah, right? I mean, even, even the sort of trend and, you know, 
whatever gods there be, right? Bless nurse practitioners. They're terrific. They're who you are usually seeing if you, if you are going to see a doctor, but like, you don't actually realize that that's who you are almost always seeing. You have to actually jump through a couple of hoops to go and see a specialist. I don't necessarily think that's good. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's because specialists are trained to see things that these people aren't necessarily. right? Right. So it's, so it's just putting a lot of onus back on the patient that really, uh, in a truly just and humane medical system, we we would have a lot more interaction with our doctors. We would have much more frequent interaction with them because it'd be much easier and cheaper to access. And so you would have someone who was actually trained to you know to to sort of keep an eye on things instead of putting all that responsibility back on the individual. So yes, yes John, I mean better again, better than nothing. Better than nothing. But just but sets women enough. up to 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 do something that is still dangerous by themselves. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm worried. I'm worried for the country. Yeah, I really am. You know, I was saying last week, too, that Pennsylvania is one of these rare states that doesn't have any abortion laws. Oh, is that about to change? That's about to change. Mm-hmm. So the governor, uh, the, the Republican-controlled state legislature, um, day before yesterday, Monday, uh, passed a law that would uh, ban abortion. Mm-hmm. And Governor uh, Wolf vetoed it. He's vetoed more legislation than any governor in Pennsylvania history because he's had he's a Democrat and he's had Republican legislature through his whole eight years as governor. Um, So the Republicans then announced yesterday that they are going to propose a constitutional amendment Mm -hmm. to ban abortion. Pennsylvania's got this weird law where it's actually quite easy to amend the Constitution. There have been 69 constitutional amendments proposed and 65 of them have passed. Mm -hmm. So this might be the beginning of the end for uh, for abortion in, in Pennsylvania. This is unrelated, but I just wanted to also slide in this. Did you see this report from the U.N. about uh, the global population? No. Oh, we're going to hit eight billion. Yikes. By the end of this year. Oh, my God. Eight billion by the end of this year. And then they're also predicting that the most populous country by 2050 will be India, India. and not China. Yeah. Which would also be a pretty big change. Yeah, that um, would be so, a big change. Yeah. I hope their their economy grows to the point where they can handle it. Yeah. That's a, that's a nice wish to end this show on. <laughs> <laughs> we, we're out of time here. I want to say thanks, as always, to our guests and to our engineers and producers. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Woody, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>